Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Mary Kay McCabe and Mirka Vlichkova from the Bilingual Montessori Project. Mary Kay McCabe founded Madrid Montessori School in 2006 and was its director until 2017. In 2018, she established Learning Ecologies to continue supporting Montessori educators as a school consultant and by offering seminars on bilingualism and school organization and leadership. In 2020, she co-founded the Bilingual Montessori Initiative in order to offer a virtual home for educators working in bilingual and multilingual schools. She received her PhD in anthropology from Columbia University and completed school management and leadership training from NAMTA and the Whole School Leadership Institute. She has also taken AMI training at the elementary and adolescent levels. Mirka Vlichkova is a mother of four children for whom she founded a Montessori primary and elementary school in the Czech Republic. She also founded and runs Montessori Institute Prague, an AMI teacher training center in the heart of Europe. Mirka is passionate about helping enthusiastic and inspired people bring Montessori to children in their communities. Recently, she started her own podcast called Montessori Institute Prague Podcast. In our conversation, Mary Kay and Mirka share a wealth of experiences, including raising bilingual children, founding bilingual Montessori schools in Europe, and running an AMI Montessori teacher training center. They also share the goals of the Bilingual Montessori Project and share ways that educators, parents, and school administrators can get involved with the project. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already interested in the intersection of bilingualism and Montessori education, so I think you'll leave this conversation feeling energized by the work that is happening with the Bilingual Montessori Project and maybe even inspired to join and participate yourself. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mary Kay and Mirka. Hi, Mary Kay and Mirka. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. I'm so excited to talk to both of you today. So to start, I would love for you to introduce yourselves. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Mirka, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, I'm so happy to be here. First of all, let me say that. <laughs> It's an honor. Uh, and my name is Mirka. I'm in Prague, Czech Republic. And I am a founder of a Montessori school and the founder and what I call a CEO, which is a chief enthusiasm officer at uh, an AMI training center in Prague. Awesome. Mary Kay? Uh, yes, I am originally from the US, the East Coast but I've been living in Madrid, Spain for 20 some years. I don't even remember at this point. Um, and I founded a Montessori school here in 2006. And I 
The school is still going strong. I left the school in 2017, and since then I've been working as a consultant, supporting a lot of schools with their trying to figure out bi and multilingual classrooms and how get that can work. Wonderful. So I'm excited to get into everything about bilingual Montessori, but first I would love to hear how you both found out about Montessori and your Montessori journey. Yes, uh, I love this question uh, so much because I think we all have so many, there are so many interesting Montessori stories out there. So I always ask people this question as well. I'm a mother of four children and when I was pregnant with my oldest son, which was 18 years ago. I uh, founded a small, what we call a family center with a friend of mine, which was a place where parents could go uh, with their children or to prepare for parenthood and just like a safe space, tea and and pastry (laughs) kind of space for parents. And um, we, we explored ways of educating ourselves as well as educating other parents and that's how I came across Montessori Uh, and I thought right from the start you know I was pregnant getting ready to be a parent myself I just fell in love with um, with the with the idea from the beginning and I started reading books and finding out about it and that was it right there (laughs) so it my parenthood it inspired my Montessori story also becoming mother was really what set me on this journey um i was living in madrid and i when my daughter was about two i started looking at schools and i was really shocked the offer is very homogeneous here and i felt like hmm there must be something out there and i looked and looked but there was nothing in the city um and at that point i had connected with some some other expat mothers and just mothers kind of you were looking at things slightly differently and thought hmm maybe we can start something and at least my initial idea was like let's get our children to six years old and then we'll decide what is the best thing for them and then I was very lucky and that one of the first mothers who rolled her child um, wanted to join me in the project and so that's how it became not only zero to six but we added on elementary um yeah that's what started me on my path <laughs> and are did both of you do ami training for and what age if so i did this was well into the, having had the school i did elementary training um in the US during a few summers. Um, and then I've also done, uh, well, I had to do the foundation course and then also done um, the adolescent orientation I actually did during lockdown online. Um, and I've done leadership training in with the whole school leadership institute. Mm-hmm. So, not exactly AMI, but friendly to AMI. <laughs> Um, found, I get. I think founded in AMI and root or rooted mm. in AMI. I I have a couple of AMI certificates. I'm also uh, studying in the same course that Mary Kay just mentioned, the whole school leadership institute course with Kathy Minardi, Sue Pritzker, and Peter Davidson. And I am doing a zero to three diploma course 
as we speak. Um, it's not so easy to do a diploma course when you own and run a training center. Interestingly enough, <laughs> I, have, I have sat on all of our courses across, you know, all of them many times, but to be a student and actually complete the work is a different story. And plus, I am not a teacher and educator myself, so I really uh, don't need the diploma itself for my practice. But um, I am doing the zero to three because I love that age group. I love the trainer and I just want to have one diploma and maybe even the rest of them later on. So that's my Montessori education. <laughs> so tell me about how the idea for the AMI Training Center came about. Were you the founder of it as well? Yes, I am the founder. And um, uh, it originated, it, the story of the training center connects with the story of the school uh, that I founded. Uh, the name of the school is Montessori Školy Angilek, which is in Czech language. And I founded the school for my children. And it was the story like everybody, I mean, these stories repeat themselves in different locations, like Mary Kay said, uh, for my own children, first the family center, then a primary program, a three to six program. And as they grow, the need grows to elementary and then to adolescence. So we just went on and the school grew with, together with my children. And because all the way from the beginning, I wanted for the Montessori program to be authentic I always knew I, you know, I would like our teachers and we, we would like to learn from AMI about how to do Montessori. And I just couldn't because I started as a mother who, with no resources. I didn't have any investors backing me up or a, a rich husband. <laughs> uh, I had to, you know, we started literally from zero. I was thinking about how are we going to get teachers trained? I don't, you know, I can't afford to send people to London or to San Diego to train. So I thought, well, maybe the easier way will be to open our own training center. And then we will have always the feed of t teachers trained uh, right in Prague and as a support to the school. So the school and the training center grew alongside each other when we wanted to open the primary program. This is when we did our three to six diploma course. Then. Two years later, we did a 6 to 12 to train teachers for our 6 to 12 program. And then later uh, uh, for the upper uh, uh, elementary, for the adolescent, we actually had to send somebody abroad. Uh, but we are still bringing the course to the Czech Republic for other people. So it was a little trick. <laughs> to, and it, uh, it really works out in a, a very wonderful way because the, the school shows in practice what we teach in the training center and when you open a training center you need to have enough AMI schools in your country in order to where people can go and observe to see the practice and at the same time um, the, the teachers the staff in the school being connected to the training center have a continual connection to the global Montessori world which inspires them and motivate them for their own growth as well. So this connection of the school and the training center really works out wonderfully for us. Yeah, that's great. I also, my training center also had several schools and it was really nice to have um, all of those examples of 
real Montessori, authentic Montessori practice to go observe as a student. Um, Mary Kay, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, well, first, what brought you to Madrid originally, and then uh, about some of the joys and challenges of running a Montessori school and what that was like over the years. Well, what initially brought me to Madrid, I was doing research for my doctoral dissertation, um, which was actually about Havana, Cuba, but I was researching the historical period. Um, and then I decided to stay here and write my dissertation. And just one thing led to another. Life takes over, as they say. Um, and right well, actually, I defended my dissertation when I was pregnant with my daughter. She, I was about four months pregnant. And so then I came back here and I had a very interesting job when I, after I finished maternity leave. Um, yeah, and so then, as you see, things followed from there. Then once she got to be the school age, um, I had to start thinking about schools. Um, the challenges of, of running a school. Um, well, it, honestly, one of our biggest challenges here in Spain is real estate because there's very little land that's actually zoned for school use. Um, and so a lot, a lot of energy was dedicated to looking for, for real estate over the years because we got to keep, you know, growing and moving. Um, and then I'd say the other big challenge was the the bilingual aspect of, of the school or the bilingual journey. I now like to think of it um, because it was it was it was long and it was hard and it was a lot of trial and error and it was a lot of not you know something of working on but you you know you're not mastering it <laughs> basically. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was really, it, it took a lot of, a lot of energy. Um, and I mean, among other things, but those are the two things I would highlight in terms of challenges. What did the bilingual setup or approach at the school look like in the beginning and, and kind of how did it evolve? Yeah. So, um, the first year actually it was english immersion supposedly and i but i didn't like the way that that played out in practice because the spanish-speaking children kind of became their own little ghetto they were a minority that first year um and they weren't integrating with the rest of the group and so then there was a mother in the school who had a PhD in bilingual education and became my advisor. And she suggested trying kind of a, a modified dual language model. Um, and so we did that and, and it was challenging because doing it in a Montessori environment, a lot of kind of the basic rules don't apply. Like having this very clear division between the languages. And, and obviously in a Montessori environment, uh, especially a children's house, a child isn't that interested in repeating something that's really unfamiliar to them. So it was just trying to figure that out. How can we make this interesting for the children, make it fun? Um, 
and and then it, things just evolved from there. And it, it, we got to a point where we had, a, we felt good about our bilingual model for Children's House. Um, we started having uh, English speaking guide and a Spanish speaking one. We did literacy in the child's native language and then they switched to the second language. But then that model kind of, fell apart, well not fell apart, but wasn't, we saw the weaknesses of it once we had an elementary program because that it was like we had two classes of students, some who were strong in English and some were strong in Spanish, but we were an American school. So English really had to be, if we had to choose one language, it needed to be English. And so that just got us into a whole another round of questions and um and then also another factor which i'm sure all schools face is what i call now the human resources puzzle because you decide to make a shift in your language program and but then you have your team who you have and you have a lot of those people because of their human qualities not necessarily by what is their native language um and so you, we had a few years of kind of just making the best we could with that situation. And it wasn't horrible, but over time, we really started to see that the children weren't, they weren't learning as they should have been in English or in Spanish. And that's when we made the decision to make our, we kind of came full circle, make our um, elementary program only in English, not that Spanish would disappear and it cannot disappear. It's a very, you know, it's interesting how languages have their own personalities in a way. And the Spanish language in Spain is very dominant. I mean, you really, which is interesting because English also in the world is a dominant language, but it has, <laughs> can't keep, it can't, doesn't stand up to Spanish in Spain. So, um, so we had to make the conscious decision and inform the parents that we were just going to shift to doing English immersion. Um, and so we did that for three years and just immediately started seeing the level, the level of everything, because before that, the children were, were in a bit of a mishmash of the two languages. And I don't, and I do believe that you know, bilingualism, true bilingualism can work. It just did not work in our context here um, because the society didn't support it in some way. Um, so we had to adapt to our reality and that reality meant going back to immersion and we maintained two languages in the children's house. But then after a three-year cycle, we evaluated and we realized that that actually the children were were having they were struggling more in elementary because of having the two languages um and actually i just recently was speaking with the upper the current upper elementary guides who said that um la the the generation that graduated last year from elementary was the last who had a bilingual children's house and they say the difference in the, the the next generation who had the English immersion children's house is incredible, and not not just in language like you might suspect, but in terms of autonomy. 
So that really, that those conversations with them now really blew me away because it really showed me that, you know, we did make the right decision. Um, it took us a while to get there and to see the results that we wanted, but but, and that's, that's really kind of summarized what the process is for any school is figuring out where you want to go, number one, because at first I thought I really wanted to have a bilingual school. I thought it was beautiful that the children could be equally competent in Spanish and English and know things in Spanish and English. But then in the practice, it just, it wasn't feasible. It wasn't happening. So anyway, a lot of trial and error again <laughs> to get there. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, what did you find was the experience for children who were um, first language English speakers and maybe didn't have Spanish at home when there when you switched back to the English immersion children's house? <laughs> well, you sound just like their parents, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that was the big concern of the parents. Um, and essentially, the answer had to be is that your child, we don't dictate what language the children use when they're in school. So all of the play pretty much happens in Spanish. Um, and, it, you know, we I would have to explain to families, this is what we're offering. If, if Spanish is really important to you and you feel that your child isn't getting enough from the school, you might have to, you know, hire a tutor if you want them to read properly in Spanish or find another, you know, private class or take them to a different school that offers that. But it's just because it also gets to that point where you just have to be very clear about what you're offering because it will never suit everyone. So mm. they have they're the ones ultimately that have to decide um, if, if it yeah. if it fits what they're looking for and their experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I love that um, that you're able to see the change in the children in elementary based on what their children's house experiences are. I think that's so beautiful to have that breadth of experience. And it really shows that it's not an overnight process, that it really takes time and mm -hmm. commitment. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I was just uh, going to testify to that as a parent, because I have uh, six. So I have four children, and my youngest is six, and she just started school this year. And I was really surprised when I spoke with the teachers in Hakaz, who said, uh, came to me and said, "So we can tell you that Vicky is a bilingual child." And I was like, wow, that's great. I, I, I mean, I knew she speaks wonderful English, but that she would, you know, somebody, that somebody would say she actually is bilingual, I did not expect. And she started in our school when she was 15 months. And in her toddler program for two years, she had a, a trained guide who, is an, uh, who speaks English, who is a native speaker or an English speaker. And then she went, so she had two years of that. And then she went into a primary program for three years where we had a Czech guide and an English speaking assistant. So she had five years of this kind of experience. And now she's in the elementary and she speaks fluent English. So I just want to, uh, you know, second to what Mary Kay was saying, that it takes time and one has to be patient and then I think as parents also, it's you, we can't just expect that the school is going to do the job. 
there are things that we as parents can do at home. One of them is watching movies in English and, you know, reading books in English and uh, uh, um, creating opportunities even at home for the child to see us parents to speak English, even though not, my husband and I are both Czech and English is our second language. But we have lots of English-speaking friends and Vicky is present. She's present when I make phone calls in English. She comes with me to my work where everybody speaks English. So she sees me speak English. We watch movies in English only with my husband. So parents have to, there's a part of the job that can help. If parents can do that, it helps a lot. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a joint job. It's not just the school's job. So I would love to talk about your own bilingual experiences now. So what were your bilingual experiences as a child and what role does bilingualism play in your day-to-day -day life now? Well, uh, I grew up in a, in a communist country. And so we, I spoke Czech and I learned Russian. I learned Russian for nine years and it was a school kind of book study, uh, study vocabulary and then try to say something kind of education. Uh, and then when I went to high school and it, the, it was the end of the communist era, I started learning English immediately. We had our school, I was in gymnasium at this time, we had Eng native English speakers who came and uh, taught conversation classes. And they were handsome, young Americans. <laughs> and I was a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> so you can imagine I was very motivated. <laughs> and I learned some basics. And then when I was 18, I decided uh, to leave home. And I went to the U.S. for one year. And I left in Chicago at the age of 18. And this is where I learned a lot of course, I, I went there and it was hard, but then very quickly I became fluent. When I came back, I decided to study at an English college. So I continued my studies in English. And ever since then, all of my jobs were in English. So I don't know if if an expert would call me a bilingual person, but uh, I am I speak English every day. I think I speak more English than Czech, in fact, uh, every day. So. That's my experience. Yeah, me in contrast, um, growing up in the United States, I was in a very firmly monolingual society, um, but I always dreamed about learning other languages and other cultures and traveling. And I remember when I was young, looking up the planes in the sky and trying to think, where is it going? Will I be on one, you know, just, projecting into the future that there would be other places in my life. Um, but directly, and I was even, since you asked that question, I was reflecting a little bit because there, in my school, at my elementary school, I remember there were families from other parts of the world, but, you know, no, we weren't, it was, a, you know, in the United States, and I don't know to what degree this is still the case since I haven't lived there in a long time, but 
when I was a girl, it was like assimilation was the key. You know, even immigrants, they didn't, they didn't want to acknowledge, or they were discouraged from, socially discouraged from acknowledging their other languages, their other cultures, their other traditions. At least that's my memory when I reflect on it. Um, and it's such a pity because there is so much diversity there, really. Um, so I, in terms of studying other languages, I did Spanish class in high school. I did French in college and more Spanish in college. But again, in, in not in a communicative way, it was, you know, grammar and vocabulary, no speaking, just, you know, at all. Um, and then it was when I wanted to, when I was going to graduate school and that, that and I decided to study cultural anthropology, which probably isn't a huge surprise based on my fantasies as a young girl. Um, and so by that point, I knew that it was going to be, I would want to do research in a Spanish speaking country. And it must have, yeah, another, another a friend of mine in graduate school told me that and he actually learned Russian for for his his studies, and he said what pushed what tipped him over into being able to speak was going to a summer program, um, and it, it's in the U.S. It's a college in the U.S. in Vermont, um, and but they they have a very they have an excellent language program, and when you go there, you have you're serious, and so you agree that you're not going to speak English. You're just going to struggle to communicate in the language that you've signed up for. You know, your, your Spanish students are there, the Russian students, you, know, you don't mix with other people. And that's what really did it for me. Maybe, you know, it was just then what I realized is then I was speaking with other people who had my level of Spanish. So you can struggle together and it doesn't feel as embarrassing and you can laugh together at all your mistakes. And so that's really what kind of made me become confident enough to really speak. Um, and then I did start doing research in, in, in Cuba. So, which is a whole other linguistic adventure. <laughs> Tell you about that another day. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what does bilingualism look like in your life these days? Yeah. So as I mentioned, my, I have just one daughter that she was born here, and so she herself has grown up bilingual. And um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, it's interesting though because especially when I was working in the school, I was using a lot of English in my job. Although there were always official things that you have to do, or some parents I'd speak to in Spanish, um, but but my professional life had been a lot in English now I feel like that's not the case so much anymore which feels more natural at some point when I worked in the school I really felt like I was in the, it, it was in a bubble you know um so it's been nice to feel kind of more naturally bilingual in my life not being in the school um and yeah my daughter is perfectly comfortable in both languages and it's just and not just her, but, you know, being in the school, watching so many children grow up with the same experience um, has been really quite amazing. Mm -hmm. 
So let's get into the bilingual Montessori project. So I'd love to hear how the idea came about and what are its objectives and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? Yeah, well, the origin story, it also comes back to Kathy Minardi and the whole school leadership training that she offers. Um, I did, I was part of one of the first cohorts to do that training. And it's over the course of, of two years, you have these intense modules in person. Well, at the time, it was still in person. Um, and towards the end, um, Kathy said to me, you have to do something with bilingualism. And I really rejected it. You know, I understood logically that it made sense, but emotionally, I just wasn't there. Um, and because it was like, you know, it was an area that didn't feel resolved, really. Um, and so it took, you know, it took me a couple of years. I started reading a lot more about it to understand from more intellectual point of view and what other researchers are saying. And then one day I just, you know, as one does, I saw a quote from Maria Montessori about, um, you know, becoming comfortable with error in your life and treating it as a friend and then I, then it came together I was like okay you can do this you can do this um and by you know helping others with your errors what you learned along the way and and then um at this point Mirka had um with Kathy Minardi and, and Sue Pritzker and Dave, uh, Peter Davidson had started organizing this LEAD Montessori conference, um, really trying to give more professional development and network, networking for Montessori leaders. And she invited me to come to Prague and, and speak about bilingualism. Um, and so I did. And that really helped me consolidate a lot of the things I had been thinking about. And then we, Mirka also had invited me to give a course because we knew that lots of people wanted to learn more about this topic. And initially it was going to be in Prague, but then she realized that the demand was just from so many different places, it wasn't practical. Um, so we shifted it to be online. And then we started our new online course right as the pandemic was breaking out. <laughs> so we were pioneers. Yes, and, and it, it's actually a very strong story because this was our first ever Zoom webinar that we did. And I have this vivid memory of my colleague Sveta and I here at the Institute. We turn on the Zoom, people start joining and then screen goes black. And there's this little circle, you know, like, I'm not getting enough internet. I'm not getting enough internet. And, and we were running around the house, not having a clue what to do. <laughs> but then it caught back on and we actually did it. And actually, maybe we didn't do the first. I, I don't remember exactly how it worked out in the end. But what I'm trying to say is that we had no idea how to do online. And we were just, you know, thinking, let's just try let's do it. Let's try and learn. As Mary Kay said, let's be friendly with error. And it turned out there are so many people out there who, who are trying to build Montessori bilingual programs that, you know, we were just overwhelmed when Mary Kay gave her talk at the Lead Montessori conference. 
she had people all over her. <laughs> you know, people just wouldn't let her take a, a, a breath because they everybody wanted to know and everybody wanted to learn more. So it was clear that there's a need out there. And then um, one day a grant call was announced and it just was like, okay, I'm writing Mary Kay. Let's see if she thinks it's a good idea. And we we had a week or so to write the grant application. We had, there are other people involved in the project. So the, the biggest task was to create the team, but uh, Mary Kay knows a lot of people. We have a, a university researcher actually involved and maybe if Mary Kay wants to share more about Aoife, uh, she can later. And we have other experts from different countries. And we have also, so we have a trained person, we have a trained guide, we have a language specialist, we have Mary Kay, who is the person who ties the whole project together with all of her experience. And we have a, an English as a second language teacher, and then we have uh, school administrators. So it's a very, um, it's a very diverse team of people with experience across the span. And thanks to the fact that Montessori Institute Park is a training center, we also invite AMI trainers to be part of our work. And so it happens that at the same time, when the project was awarded to us, AMI has already started looking into the uh, subject or the topic as, as well. So we are in connection with the AMI, AMI uh, Pedagogical Committee on Multilingualism as well. And they are rather excited about our work and we are excited about their work. And uh, so we wrote the grant and it got award we got it awarded. It's for three years. It's called Building Bilingual Elementary Programs. And we are the goal of the project is to create a, fi a field guide, we call that, uh, so that other people can learn from each other, basically. We're going to provide some core principles, but more it's going to be about asking yourself the right questions because schools and people are in different situations. There's no, no, no way we can write a manual that everybody could follow. So we're trying to help people ask themselves, what is it that you want to do? Mary Kay mentioned that at the beginning, that the most essential thing for school to do is to decide what's, what is it that they want to accomplish and then design the way to get there so that's one of the things that we'll be sharing and then we are bringing in the uh, pedagogical perspectives of course and but we're also bringing in perspectives of langu language specialists and of people from the field who are doing the work Mary Kay is currently interviewing different schools and doing an in-depth survey on what's the experience out there yeah, it's, it's a great project and uh, we, we get so many emails from people, you know, and, and messages asking how can we be part of this, how can we help. So we are also creating a community around the work. One of the things that we can invite people for are our community conversations. One of the conversations is coming up tomorrow. And we, what they are, are is just a Zoom call. It's free of charge. Anybody can attend. People can register at the website of the project, which is bilingualmontessori.com. And 
we have series of I think five talks scheduled by different experts, people from the field, and anybody who is doing this work can come to these conversations, get inspired by what they do, learn from them, and then ask questions. Yeah, so it actually loops back to what I was going to explain about this case study research project, because so when we met the first time as a as a group, we'd been meeting online, but the first time in person and really were able to kind of talk through a lot of things, what became clear is that we needed to do some research. Um, and so um, the language specialist or the, the professor that that Mirka mentioned, um, she and I designed a, a case study research study over the summer. And, um, you know, we had to be modest in our aspirations. You know, we identified mostly just schools that we already knew of or had contact with to make it doable. And the, the goal was to interview a school leader, uh, an elementary guide, and a language specialist if the school happened to have one, or it could be a second guide, depending on what their organization was like. <clears throat> and interestingly enough, so we had the idea for the community conversations, but a lot of the people that I've been inviting are people that I've gotten to know because I interviewed them. And they shared with me their wonderful practices, the things that they've discovered along the way. And so it beautifully has kind of fed into the project, you know, it's really helping all sides of the project. And I think, yeah, I think Mirka's right. We have about five scheduled already, but we have um, 15 dates for all of 2023. Um, so they're going to be coming at a, you know, more or less every two weeks. Um, and I think that, I mean, the, the goal is to be very practical <clears throat> from the different points of view. We'll have some guides speaking, um, in a, mostly focused on elementary age children because that's the focus of the grant work. But for example, I did an interview with the children's house guide who had some amazing insights. And so she's gonna come in um, and give a talk as well. Um, and just kind of keeping it, you know, to whatever might be inspiring and useful to people out there in the field. You know, that was the idea of the field book. Um, everyone's out there doing it. And so now, since we had the gift of time with this grant, we can start collecting their stories, their voices. And, you know, either through the interviews, we've also invited people to write to us um or to write things for our website so we'll be posting soon some amazing things that we receive so you know this isn't just our work this is pulling together what people all over the world are doing but putting it in a common place so everyone who's doing the work can learn from each other so that's really you know if there's one single goal i'd say that's the goal um, and it will never be completed because there'll always be more to learn. <laughs> um, but it's rather fascinating, right? When I uh, listen to you, Mary Kay, I'm thinking this is really an um, amazing opportunity that we were given thanks to the Erasmus grant. I don't think anybody out there has started this work. You know, it's just not possible when you don't have the funding. So thanks to the funding, there's a group of experts 
you know, across Europe who are working on this, who are spending a lot of time, Mary Kay is working on this almost full time. And so we are really, really proud of the work we are doing. And we're so happy that we can share it with people just, you know, to help to make it available. Yeah. So. It's and cool. I know I'll just explain briefly what Erasmus is, because I think people outside of Europe aren't as familiar with it but it's actually funding program from the European Union. And a lot of what they fund are educational projects to support, and it all usually has to do with um, cross-cultural transnational experiences. So that can be students are able to go, a student from Spain can go spend a year in the Czech Republic at a university and vice versa. And then at you know the professional level, they, they fund these projects. And one of the criteria is that they have to be transnational. Um, we had to have different people from different countries to fit their vision of what the work should be. So it's, it's really quite valuable. Yeah, it's so exciting to hear you both talk about it. Um, and I think you're right. I haven't come across anything like it. I don't think there's anyone else doing this work. So it's very exciting. And I am hoping that schools and educators in the United States also can tap into these resources because, um, as you both know, bilingual education really isn't um, widespread here. So I'm hoping that it starts to become yes, more yeah. so. Well, everything that we produce as part of the project work is going to be available free of charge on the website. And Mary Kay, I and I are very proud of the website. It is bilingualmontessori.com and there's a story to the domain as well. <laughs> when Merton and I started discussing, you know, we really feel like there's we can do some service to the community in this area. We looked for a domain and this domain was booked by one of the commercial companies because it's a beautiful domain and it was very, very expensive. And we didn't have the money, none of us. And we were just thinking, you know, how are we going to... And But we felt so strong about it that we actually found a way to buy the domain. And we are just so happy now because, um, the, you know, we had... It was a leap of faith. And we now can see that uh, we were meant to make, to make that leap because there's so much need out there, so... Well, and actually, one of the ways we scraped together the money, I mean, it's from different sources, but one source of the, the money was reinvesting money that we had earned from the first um, webinar series. Um, so we were able to use that money and put it into buying the domain. So, so everyone should go to bilingualmontessori.com so that they can see the beautiful website. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. And, and sign, so, you can sign up, you know, just maybe mention at this point that if people out there are interested to stay in touch with us and to know about all the resources available, there's a little place to subscribe for the newsletter. And we send out a newsletter semi-monthly whenever there's something new happening in the project so people can sign up there and then we'll be uh, sending information. And I also want to say, Gabrielle, that we are really excited about your work. Because mm -hmm. one of one of the things that we see uh, in our, you know, when we do the surveys and when we speak with schools and practitioners, that 
it's really a lot about collaboration of the school and parents and parents need to we need to help parents understand what's their role uh, in this work and so we were really excited about your work and it's almost like the second side you know where these scales is the work of the school and then the work of the family and you're working in that area so we really hope that in the future we have we can do more together and I definitely I actually was inspired by you and a few other colleagues I'm starting my own podcast Medicaid is also starting a podcast so we're hoping to invite you to our podcast as well. <laughs> oh, I would love that. Oh, thank you. That would be very exciting. And yes, I agree. It's um, They go very well together, supporting the schools and supporting the parents. And it's just, I'm so inspired hearing about this project and hearing your paths to coming to this project. So you talked a little bit about some of the challenges that schools face when they're developing bilingual education programs. And I wonder if you can tell us some of the questions that schools or educators should ask themselves when they're either starting a bilingual program or evaluating their program that already exists. Well, as as Mirka already said, the the first thing they have to ask, and then if they're reevaluating because they're not sure if they're really meeting their objectives, is what are those objectives? Because otherwise, you don't know where you're going. You don't know where you're trying to get to. And I, and I did it myself. I mean, you you just find yourself in a not very thoughtful way, just kind of evaluating how the children are speaking the second language in the school. And yeah, that's one way of knowing, but you have to know ultimately what do we need to offer them for when they leave the school. Um, and, you know, we can have our idea and then is that possible with, with within our reality, our economic reality and other material things can also um, intervene there. So I, I, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's not an exciting question and it can actually be a very tedious question because sometimes you think you know, but then when you actually try to put words to it, you, it's not so clear. So for me, that's, that's always central. And once you have the goals clear, then you evaluate your resources. And if you feel like you're not, things aren't going as you want, um, you have to really sit down and generally with this, you know, listen to as many people as possible and try to evaluate why it's not happening and, and then make the decision about what needs to be corrected. But from the very beginning, it's really looking at, um, what you would like to offer, what the children need, given them where you live and where they're going to be studying later, um, and what's realistic within your budget and with other restrictions that you might have. Um, and then, so that's what I think we can start calling, like, what does bilingual bilingualism or multilingualism mean to this particular school? And once you have that clear, then it's much easier to communicate with with what you're doing with parents with with you know staff that you may want to hire um you need to have the kind of that core mission very clearly laid out i think and as i said in my own story it can change and it can change back again um 
you know, that's just part of, you know, taking a more, you know, knowing that it's a long process, I think is also so, so important. You're not going to get there and where you want to be immediately, um, or even in a few years. I mean, depends where you are, but um, yeah. So just taking all of the the whole context into consideration. Um, uh, in our school, it's the people question, and it's meaning finding the right staff. Product Montessori trained and at the same time people who are like uh, second language teachers or specialists and then the people question in terms of parents who have each each family has a different idea on what it means that their child is bilingual and it's 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 really a whole big discussion when a school starts to transition into becoming a bilingual school uh, between parents and their desires and how you know how we can do that and how can we find enough staff to help us with that so i think what i have seen when i speak with schools in my work is that how do we find enough trained staff to do this and how can we work with parents to help them understand that it takes time and how we can do it on all those things so the people question mm-hmm. <laughs> yes Yeah, that seems like a very tricky part of the puzzle to to figure out. And what are some questions that parents can ask when they're visiting a school about the bilingual education program structure or other aspects that might be helpful for them to know? Well, I, I'm just thinking, it, again, it probably, you know, each parent will have their own idea. So it'll most likely be go through that lens, but um, they might want to know is the schools, does the school aspire for the children to be bilingual and biliterate, equally fluent in two languages, or is the, is this, is the second language more just um, to have social comfort with another language, which I think, you know, I think schools sometimes feel bad about that when they make that choice, but that is such a valid thing to offer a child in today's world, you know, just to be able to, you know, have simple conversations, to facilitate traveling, to, and then as they get older in work situations. And so I think sometimes um, schools sometimes feel apologetic if they're not offering full biliteracy. And I think it's important for parents to realize as well that, you know, what what the school is able to offer, whatever it is, will be a good experience for their child. Because I just think exposing a young child to another language, it just opens their mind in so many ways, not just linguistically. Especially because language is culture and it's part of your identity. And so... And everyone's had their own experiences of trying to learn a language. And, you know, so it just all gets mixed mm-hmm. up um, in those conversations. Yeah. Well, I think in our school, it's two, two, two types of questions. It's, will my child be, will my child speak fluent English at the end of the program? And will they also read and write in it? Will they be able to use the language to study other subjects? That's the one type of uh, parent that we have. And then... The second type of parent are 
parents who have bilingual children and they want to know, are you going to be able to help my child keep up with the bilingual ability in both languages? So those are the two you know, sides of one coin that we experience in our school. And my last question was going to be, how can parents and educators get involved with the Bilingual Montessori Project? But you shared about the newsletter and the webinars, and I'll link to all of those in the show notes as well. Is there anything else that you want to leave listeners with about the Bilingual Montessori Project? Well, exactly that. We were just getting an Instagram um, account going that's titled that, Bilingual Montessori Project. So we would love people to come and visit and start to follow us um, as we start to communicate there as well. So that would be really great. Um, Come to uh, community conversations, definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. We are a community of people working on the same thing, on the same goal. So be with us and let's learn from each other. And um, there was something else I was thinking. Oh, and Mary Kay, do we still need schools for the survey? If there's a school out there that has good practice going, we'd like to know about you. So just write us an email. Right. Right. So basically, yeah, there's an open invitation now for any school or any educator who wants to share some practice that they found really effective with their students, because that's what we're collecting now, creating this knowledge library of, of effective practices. So then other people can go and consult and get inspired. So yeah, there's definitely an open invitation to write. The email address is hello at bilingualmontessori.com. And uh, we're happy to hear your stories in whatever form, written, spoken. Um, and if you have wonderful. a really wonderful story to share, Mary Kay is starting a podcast for Bilingual Montessori. So write us an email. We'd be happy to hear about your story too. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the initial idea with the podcast is to interview some of the people who will be speaking and either take a topic and go into more detail than their talk allowed for, or to speak about a completely different angle because we have some really talented people who have a lot to share. So it's just to take advantage of their generosity with their time and their knowledge and try to get it out there in in different ways um, on a variety of topics. But yeah, if anyone has an idea, please write and let us know. Um, We love getting ideas from, from the field. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Gabrielle, for inviting us. And we really look forward to whatever we are going to do together in the future. Thank you again to Mary Kay and Mirka for joining me for this conversation. You can find all the information about the Bilingual Montessori Project at bilingualmontessori.com. And you can also find them on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and on my website at multilingualmontessori.org. You can find links to everything in the episode description. Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. 
And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. Thank you.